Thanks for listening to the gathering from Storyline Church. The life of a mother, teacher, accountant, American, doctor, student, etc., has certain aspects to it that make it unique. Some of these are cherished, some are challenging, but all are necessary to make that life work at the most fulfilling level. The same is true of the life of faith. This past Sunday, at Storyline's gathering, we looked at one critical aspect of the life of faith that is often overlooked and even ignored. The band performed songs by the Beatles, Christian French, Rich Mullins, and more. Let's have a listen. Oh 
believe that I would rather drown See the end of the tunnel, take another lap around Flying through the sky, trying to get to higher ground Baby, I was blind, but I can see it now Living on the brink of damn Mansions in the sinking sand Trying to pull me under, but you stuck like thunder When you reached out and grabbed my hand There's a cool water storm coming When the land runs dry, let the good Lord cry Give me more of it Oh, Father, the feeling's flooded If the sun's gonna rise and the man can't hide Give me more of it 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 Good morning, Storyline. Here I am. There I am. Good morning, Storyline. It's so good to be together. Now, uh, you know, I usually start off with some kind of funny video, and I thought that I, I saw this, and I thought, that's even better than a funny video. I mean, given everything that we're seeing on TV all the time, how anti-intuitive how anti-intuitive is it? How surprising it is that the world is actually, in many, many ways, getting better and better. One of the many stats that stuck out to me, did you catch this one, that at the time of the American Revolution, the average lifespan was 29 years old. It's crazy. By the way, that life expectancy has not changed.
for about 2,000 years up until the American Revolution. Today, the average lifespan in the world is over 70. And it wasn't until about 1900 that the American, the average American lived to be 40 years old. I can't even remember 40. Like, it's too long ago. It's, can't imagine that. Now, I'm hoping my son will learn to clean his room by the time he's 40. That's the... That's what we're shooting for. So, but the world is getting better, believe it or not. I know that's anti-intuitive. I know it's crazy. There's an even more updated version post-pandemic of that video. And the numbers, except for just a couple, are even better. And the question is, how can that be? Because it doesn't feel like that, right? Now, obviously, we still have horrendous problems in the world. There are all kinds of personal exceptions as well, right? I'm sure many of us here can point to a particular situation that's made our personal world worse in the last year, in the last month, maybe in the last week. But generally speaking, the world has never been safer, healthier, richer, and more equitable than it is right now today. It's, I, I know that this sounds crazy, because that is not what it seems like to us, but that is what it's like. And of course, we, we all want even more of it. We'd like to see this happen more and more. Studies actually show that it's the most advanced countries in the world, in particular Sweden and the United States, that have the most inaccurate view of the state of the world. It's, it's really fascinating. The, that right there is worth looking at. Like, why is that? Why is it that the countries that are the most advanced have the worst view of the world? That's another talk for another day, probably. So everything is getting better. So the question is, why does it feel the opposite? Why does it seem like everything is worse than it's ever been and getting, like, worser? Which is not a word, okay? <laughs> Unfortunately, there's really only one answer for that. Why, why things are getting better and why they feel worse. And the answer for that is... People, that's why. If aliens were to visit our planet and send back a report of what they found, they could go on and on about the beauty of our world, the natural resources, the fertile soil, amazing oceans. But if you ask them, what's the absolute best thing about Earth? They would answer, people. The catch is, if you ask them, what's Earth's biggest problem? They would say, people right? People are the best thing and the worst thing about life. I always joke with my colleagues at Lakeshore High School when we have these in-service days and there's no students there. And I'm like, this is great. Like, why don't we do this more often? I'm going to get so much done today, right? The best thing and the worst thing about life is often people. I mean, think about your own life. I'll bet for most of us, that's true in our own life. If I were to ask you, what is the best thing about your life? And what's the hardest, most difficult thing about your life? It probably would be two different people. Maybe the same person, right? Now, I'm not talking about you, of course. You're not the worst person on any, anybody's list, and I'm not either. But there are some people who are just, they're the worst, right? I'm talking about everybody else. So the disagreements, the division, the rancor, the rhetoric, the distrust, the resentment, the isolation, the animosity between people seems to be at an all-time high. So here, here, this is a situation we have. The world, statistically, on paper, has never been better, yet experientially, in real life, we have never felt 
worse, and primarily because we can't just seem to get along. It's because of relationships with people. Now, why is that? So after several months of focusing on the grace of God this fall and how God's unconditional love, acceptance, forgiveness, and affection can change everything, and then this last month, we started to look at what it might look like to resolve to respond to that grace. This month, we're looking at several ingredients to the life of faith. Paul started that for us last week, and if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go watch his talk online. It was just so great. And anyways, one of the most important and critical aspects of the life of faith is life together. Life together, life with others, with people in community. And so this morning I want to ask this question, why is community so hard and why is it so important? So what makes it hard, why is it important? Uh, Why is it a, a necessary aspect of the life of faith in the grace of God? So a friend of mine was telling me that his wife asked him, this question, honey, do I make your life easier? Now, if you've been a husband for a while, right, you get that this is for sure one of those questions. And um, those of us who've been married long enough instantly see the danger in a question like that. But my friend is young, he hasn't even been married 10 years, so he's like in the first trimester as a, as a husband, okay? You know, he's just at the very beginning of his training. And so I was already cringing as he began to tell me what he said to her. He told her, no, you don't make my life easier. <clears throat> Wrong answer. That's what I'm thinking. And so I guess I failed to hide the horror on my face because he looked at me and he said, That's how she reacted right there. Then he said, I went on, Mike, and I told her, no, you don't make my life easier, but you do make it better. And I thought, wow, that's a a pretty good save for a trainee, right? (laughs) For someone who's not even been married 10 years, nice save. I'm not sure if it would have worked in my marriage, in my house. Uh, I have learned, though, that all depends on my tone of voice. So tone is a big deal, but that's like second, third decade level training, okay? So that's, it takes a while for them to get to tone, guys. Anyways, but here's the thing. Living in community, connected, belonging, definitely makes life much more complicated, messy, difficult, and inconvenient. It is hard work, and it often doesn't make life easier, but it does make life better does make life better. So if we're going to get at that, if we're going to dive into the life of faith and the grace of God, and part of that is living in community, I think we have to ask the question, what makes it so hard? What makes it so hard? So one of the best parts of being a dad is that when the kids are little, especially, um, acting like a good dad is also looks a whole lot like acting like a little kid again. And uh, I always enjoyed that when our kids were younger. And um, one of the things that I didn't realize I missed about being a kid, and then our kids were, when they were little, um, I got to experience this again, was cartoons. And, and my favorite growing up was always Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. Who remembers that, right? Okay, you're super old. Yes, all right. Okay, so... Um, 
Of course, marketers learned long ago, even back in my childhood, like how to take these popular cartoons and to you know, link them with some kind of product, whether it's a toy or it's um, uh, cereal or something like that. Uh, even or put them all together and it's like a Happy Meal at McDonald's. And even entire restaurants were geared towards kids. And this is one of the more famous ones, Chuck E. Cheese's, right? And every parent and grandparent has been there, unfortunately. So, but this is a perfect example. Like, is it a restaurant? Is it an amusement park? And the answer is both, and also very much neither. And um, you have to really be there to experience that. But it is a place for the kids, but that secretly, at least some of the dads, they kind of like it. You get to play video games, you get to play other games, and it's an excuse to eat like food that adults should not be eating in quantities that you should not be eating it in, right? So I remember going there one time. Our kids were little. Everything is all you can eat, of course. And so I purposely ate a very reasonable amount of pizza so that I could eat an unreasonable amount of ice cream. And it was that time of the, I was going to say evening, but it, you're, you're there for like eight hours. So this may have been my second trip to the Sunday bar. But I'm up at the Sunday bar, and there's this little kid in front of me, and we're shuffling along like this. And he is putting together what I thought. I mean, this kid was a genius. It's like a masterpiece of a Sunday. It was amazing. He had a bunch of ice cream on there, cookie crumbs, caramel, hot fudge, gummy bears, skipped the fruit, which was a pro move. <laughs> right? That could be good for you, you know? So I was super impressed. And then, you know, he couldn't have been five years old. And then I watched as he got to the end of the line, and the counter kind of kept going, and he paused in front of this dispenser. <laughs> right, okay? And he clearly couldn't read, and he didn't want to ask me for help. And I... I probably should have said something, but I just wanted to see what was going to happen. So anyways, so he proceeds to put his Sunday under there and just puts a pile of ketchup on this incredible Sunday. And a very nice lady came over and said, oh honey, that's okay, you can get another one. And now this little boy realizes at this point what he's done. Um, and he says this, no, that's okay, it's okay, I'm fine. And then he takes his spoon and he just stirs the ketchup <laughs> into the sundae, right? It's easy to laugh at, but haven't you ever messed something up, like made a bad mistake, had something happen to you that you just, you've been too embarrassed to admit or to talk about or too ashamed to go back and start over, so you just keep going? That's stirring it in. That's the adult version of stirring it in. Last month, we had one of our story Sundays, and it's always like one of my very favorite Sundays of the year, and it was great. It was really, really wonderful, and I was really struck by the courage that Michelle, Mark and Sherry, Lori, Mike, and Tiffany displayed as they shared a little bit about their life from up here on stage. And as I thought about how they all kind of fit together, the big theme for me really was kind of like this, their refusal to just stir it in. They all had that in common, like this desire to live life better. Not easier, but better. And what I heard in them was this commitment to like fight fine, 
as in, it's okay, I'm fine. Fine really is kind of like the new F word. It's like, it's, it just doesn't work. And in their stories, that's what I heard. Fine wasn't good enough for them. They knew they were made for more and they were reaching for more. And it was really very, very inspiring morning. That kid's Sunday wasn't fine. No amount of caramel and hot fudge was going to make that Sunday fine. There are times in life when we have to realize or admit, really, that there's no amount of stirring. There's no amount of stirring that's going to make things fine. Someone emailed me not long ago, and they started off with this. I'm fairly new to storyline. Now, I get that line or something like it quite a bit, and you never know what's coming after that, right? So they, they, they uh, you know, I put on my seatbelt, and I'm like, okay, here we go. What, what's coming? But then they said this. Everyone seems so nice and so real. I love the music, whatever. And I, <laughs> just saying, I love the music, and the way everyone dresses, but now it just seems like all of that just goes along with the realness. And then they said this, everyone there has a story and it seems like they aren't afraid to admit it. It was a very, very encouraging for me because I think that we um, live in a world that stirs, that encourages us to stir for multiple reasons. My friend Bonnie shared this great line with me. Every saint has a past and every sinner a future. I love that. I hope that we're accepting and inviting as storyline and inclusive because all of us recognize that our Sunday has plenty of ketchup on it. And yet for me, and even just saying that generically, for me, there is something that I, this is something that I have to be reminded of all the time because my gut level reaction, like my instinct about my own brokenness, wounds, shortcomings, and failures is to hide them. When, when I pile ketchup on my Sunday or when someone else or life just in general just slops a big glop of ketchup on my Sunday, I get scared, I get anxious, I'm afraid to look afraid and ask questions and ask for help or start over. And let's just say I do a lot of stirring in my life. Now, if there's a difference between Jesus and the community he formed and what we expect to find in religious settings, it's this. He is not nearly as concerned about the catch-up as we are. But, what he is all about, what does concern him. When we look at the life and the ministry of Jesus and the message of Jesus and what he's trying to say to us, it seems like he's saying, your problem isn't the ketchup, it's the stirring. Which begs this question, why do we stir? Why do we stir? It's one of these things that makes community something we need really, really hard, if not impossible. How is it that at the age of five, four or five, what this kid was, that how did he know that he needed to deny and hide his mistake? Of course, we all get it in the abstract, like 
like we, we all know no one's perfect, I'm not perfect, you're not perfect, we're all human, we all make mistakes. But when it gets down to it, to like the nitty gritty, to the personal, in the present tense, in our real life right now, here's the thing, and I need us to put our thinking caps on here for a second because this is a little bit of a mind bender. I can't, and you can't, none of us can think of anything that we are currently wrong about. Everything that you think is true, you think it's true because you think it's true. In retrospect, sure, we can look back at how we used to think or believe or things that we did in the past that at the time we thought was right, but now we can go, oh, that was wrong. We can admit that we were wrong. Like, for example, just a random example, maybe big hair wasn't such a good look for me, okay? This is my era of high school right here, okay? Now, I don't want to identify which of these three young ladies are now a part of Storyline, okay? Because it is not my goal to embarrass anyone ever here at this when we come together. But this is a ketchup sundae hairdo, okay? We can see that now. It's perfectly obvious in retrospect. But at the time... They thought they were right, like this is really cool hair. Now the problem is, in real life, we don't live in retrospect. We live in the present tense. We work, we vote, we go on vacation. We make decisions in the present tense. And in the present tense, right here, right now, think about this, there is nothing that I think there's nothing that you think you are wrong about. Otherwise, you wouldn't think it. Every position we hold, every perspective we have, every ingredient that we have put into our life Sunday, we think it's going to taste great. What this means is we all go through life in what sociologists call a bubble of rightness. Right now, everyone here believes we are right about everything. If we didn't believe it was right, we wouldn't believe it. By definition, everything we believe, we believe it's right, otherwise we wouldn't believe it. That means all of us go through life in a bubble of rightness. The problem is, not that, because that's inevitable. That's really not changeable. The problem is, is when we get stuck there, and how like thick are the walls of our bubble? One reason we get stuck in our bubble of rightness has a lot to do with what it feels like emotionally to be wrong. Now stay with me, because I think this is one of the reasons that we stir and stirring is what makes community so hard, and community is an aspect of life that we have to engage in if we're gonna experience the life we were made for, okay? Let me say that again, right? I think one of the reasons that we stir, okay, is because of the way it feels emotionally when we're wrong. And that's a problem because stirring makes community hard, and without community, 
we get stuck in all kinds of places we don't want to be in life. All right? So how does it feel to be wrong? You think of a time when you, you were wrong. It's horrible. It's terrible. It's embarrassing, correct? Like, sure, exactly. But not really. Not really. It doesn't feel horrible and terrible and embarrassing to be wrong. It only feels horrible, terrible, and embarrassing when we realize we're wrong. See, the moment before we realize we're wrong, when we're over here, we're going this way through life, we're over here, we're wrong. It feels great. Then we get here, we realize we're wrong. Then it feels terrible, horrible, and embarrassing. An an example would be, we are all like Wile E. Coyote. In every episode, he chases the roadrunner off of that cliff. Every time. What makes it funny is that he is totally fine right up to the point when he looks down and realizes he's run off this cliff. It's only after he realizes he's wrong that it becomes a problem for him. That's when it becomes a problem for him. When we are wrong about something, not when we realize it, but before that, we're just like Wile E. Coyote. We're already wrong. We just feel like we're right. And if we forget that, that possibility, then our bubble of rightness, that, that membrane becomes impenetrable. It becomes way too thick. So one reason we get stuck in our bubble of rightness is because most of the time we don't have this internal cue to let us know that we're wrong until we're off the cliff, until we're falling, until we taste the ketchup. In other words, until we're suffering the consequences. What I'm trying to say is being wrong does feel like something. It feels exactly like being right. They feel the same. They feel, they feel the same. Now this should make us hold on a little more loosely and humbly to what we know to be true and good and real. Now who does the best job of this in real life? And I've thought hard about this. Is it scientists? No, I don't think so. Philosophers? I wish, not at all. I really think, and I, look, I, I researched this very, very hard in the last two weeks. Who is the best at this? And the best example that we have in the, in the modern world of a community who desperately wants to be right but holds on to this humbly is Lions fans, okay? <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. Just is, all right? Lions fans, they are finally good like but you know they are like they're so bad they've been so bad for so long they're like the cubs of the nfl they're so bad they're worse because they never won it right so if you but here's the thing i have some i have some friends who are lions fans i'm not embarrassed to admit that there may be some in here okay they play the bears today the bears are terrible right and the lions fans if you ask them like oh you know, you're going to kill them today, right? They're like, hold on, just 
be careful. It's like, Lions fans are like this. Like, shh, don't, don't wake me up out of this daydream I'm having, right? Anything could happen. Look, I think they're good, but let's wait and see. Because this is what Lions fans' life has always looked like. Now, if you look at the people that Jesus had the most trouble with in his life, it was always the people who were the most religious. Now, let me translate that. It was the people who were locked inside their bubble of rightness. They were sure that they knew they were right about everything they believed. In one encounter, Jesus is talking to a group of people just like this, and he says this, Woe to you hypocrites, you blind guides. You strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. You cleanse the outside of the cup, but the inside you are full of dead men's bones. First, clean the inside of the cup. This is not teddy bear Jesus. He's coming after these guys. And here's what he's saying. It's the ketchup that's, it's not the ketchup that's killing you. It's the stirring. It's the stirring. These people weren't open. They weren't alert. They weren't expectant. They weren't dependent. In fact, they were closed, asleep, bored, and controlling. They had no humility, and they were not teachable. And these were points of pride for them. In fact, being very religious is now almost synonymous with like standing your ground and never changing your mind. But as we saw so beautifully on Story Sunday a few weeks ago, Michelle and Mark and Sherry, Lori, Mike, and Tiffany, for them, living in and living out the grace of God isn't about standing your ground, it's about walking your path. One, and that path could be one of consistent challenge, pushback, and lots of discovery. And often that discovery is, oh, I guess I was wrong about that. Which brings us to, I think, the second reason that we get stuck in our bubble of rightness and why we do so much stirring in life, and it's cultural. By the time we're in kindergarten, we have learned to stir because our culture says to be wrong means you're lazy, irresponsible, weak, damaged, or dumb. Success equals no mistakes. And we learn this lesson, this bad lesson, very well, even though the most successful people tell us it's not true. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And that is why I succeed. I mentioned a few weeks ago, some people would say I bragged a few weeks ago, that I was recently promoted from assistant to the assistant to the JV coach at Lakeshore uh, High School to the actual assistant. And um, it's true. Hold your applause, please. Anyways, on Friday, we played St. Joe here, and we won. 
But we missed so many shots, you guys. It was unbelievable. And I found myself like getting frustrated. But to our head coach's credit, Ryan is our head coach, he like remains steadfast. Like for him, it's not about making or missing shots. It's about taking the right shot. And I got lost for a second. I was like, this, we've got to make these, these shots for them to be good shots. And Ryan was just, no, that was a good shot. It didn't go in. It's okay. But our culture only celebrates made shots. We reward only perfection with ribbons, trophies, and the honor roll. And is it any wonder then we grow up as adults and we train for marathons, we run the kids to every event, we tweak our portfolio, we kick butt at work, then we return home to prepare a meal from scratch, all organic, and then help the kids do their homework till midnight. And we're just exhausted. Is it any wonder that we freak out at the prospect of being wrong, failing, or showing weakness? So because on a personal level, being wrong feels emotionally just like being right, and on a cultural level, to be wrong means there's something wrong with me, we slowly suffocate in our bubble of rightness. And when life just doesn't add up, when something tastes wrong, we just stir. It doesn't work. The truth is the fallout from this way of framing life and our mistakes and our shortcomings and our challenges and our setbacks is killing us long before we die. What is the way forward in the life of faith? Well, a few years ago, a very good friend of mine, Mike Welch, passed away from cancer. And I spent a lot of time with him in the last several months of his life, especially in at his funeral, I was talking to his friend of mine, Keith, and, uh, who told me something that Mike told him. Uh, he had been trying, Keith had been trying to comfort Mike, and, and, you know, wow, it's been tough on you, Mike, like the chemo and all the treatments. And Mike, who braved his fight with cancer and then accepted his fate with enormous grace, um, though he never complained, he never faked it either. And that struck Keith, that really struck me, and he was just really real about the whole ordeal. He refused to stir. And because of that, he was surrounded by people. It was really a beautiful thing. He told Keith, even in the midst of how fortunate and blessed he was, in the midst of all of that, Mike told Keith that he would sit in his treatment rooms, getting the chemo um, treatments, his life overflowing with love and support, with real community, and yet he saw so many other patients who weren't just suffering from cancer, they were suffering from the deadly disease, the side effect of stirring. And Mike told Keith that every time he was in these rooms getting his chemo, he would look at these folks and it reminded them him of this song. Up the rice in a church where a wedding has been. Lives in a tree, 
waits at the window Wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door Who is it for? Writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear No one comes near, look at him working Donning his socks in the night when there's nobody there What does he care, all the lonely people? Where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all be? Wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks to the grave No one was saved, all the lonely people Where do they all come from? All the lonely people Where do they all belong? I was reminded of that song this week because I don't know if you saw, but Friday was the, I think the 43rd anniversary of John Lennon being killed. And I read an interview uh, with Paul McCartney and he mentioned this song. And uh, he talked about writing this song, Eleanor Rigby. And he said in the original version, it wasn't Father McKenzie. In the original uh, version of the song that he wrote, the lonely priest was Father McCartney. He wrote himself into the song. And when asked why, he confessed, here I am one of the most famous persons in the world and I'm totally isolated, completely alone because I don't know where I belong. How can that be? What causes this feeling of we don't know where we belong? And I think what I'm trying to suggest this morning is that it's a lack of community and that comes out of stirring. All of the stirring will wear us out. It leaves us isolated and alone, but life doesn't have to be this way. And I think this is the genius of Jesus, really. It, it, this is why he began with belonging. Over and over again, when you look at the life of Jesus and he invited people and included people long before he knew their whole story or they knew his, or he knew if they had their act together or what they believed about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. It was about bringing people to 
together. Jesus began with belonging. He began with belonging because he knew the hold personally, emotionally, culturally, that our bubble of rightness has on us and the devastating impact it can have on our life if, we, if all of our life is about protecting our bubble of rightness. So how do we get out of this bubble of rightness? Well, the Bible is pretty straightforward. It just says it this way. A man who refuses to admit his mistakes can never be successful. But if he confesses and forsakes them, he gets another chance. Now, this is really interesting. The Hebrew word for confess is yadha. It simply means to speak the truth. In other words, admit, like, ugh, look at this. I put ketchup on my Sunday. <laughs> we actually use this Hebrew word all the time when we tell our story. So, I'm on 3rd Avenue, minding my own business, and yada, yada, yada. I get a free massage and a facial. Wow. What a succinct story. <laughs> I'm surprised you drive a Cadillac. Oh, it's, it's not mine. It's my mother's. Oh. Are you close with your parents? Well, they gave birth to me and yada yada. Yada what? Yada, yada, yada. Didn't know that was a Hebrew word, did you? Learn something every time. So this is what the Bible is saying. When we confess, I'm wrong. I've been faking it, or I'm hurt, I'm wounded or broken, and I've been stirring it all back into my life, and it tastes awful. When we admit that, when we confess that, when we do that, we will get another chance. Other translations say it this way, we will find mercy. You know, it's almost 20 years ago now that Storyline started, and even before we had the name, I was asked to speak one Sunday, and I thought, I was terrified, and I thought, how can I get out of this? And I, you know, I just put my thinking cap on, I tried to come up with all kinds of excuses, and nobody was buying any of them, and so I'm like, okay. But how can I make sure this is the only time that I speak at Storyline? And I came up with this great plan, okay? This was my plan. I'm gonna get up there, and just tell them all the reasons I shouldn't be doing this. So in my very first talk, I got up here. It wasn't here, it was someplace else. I got up and I, I was just going to try to ruin this for myself, right? So I confessed in that talk, I have a therapist because I need one. I have an internet filter because I need one. My wife and I have a marriage counselor because she needs, I mean, I need, because I need one. <laughs> According to her, I need one. Now, and I thought, that'll do it. They'll never ask me again. And the very opposite thing happened. All I got was, oh, thank you for saying that, or thank you for admitting that, or and me too. I was like, dang it! Yet another thing I was wrong about, right? <laughs> it's really important that we see this. Yadha, confession, is a form of vulnerability. And vulnerability requires belonging. It can only happen in community. 
When I admitted that and confessed that in front of people back then, and I guess like I just did again right now in front of you, it's because it worked because I was in that community and they could give me another chance. And it changed everything. And I've spoken more than just a couple times here in the last 20 years. To break out of our bubble of rightness, we must confess, and confession requires connection. It requires community. The life of faith is not something that we can do alone. It is not just about what we privately believe about God. That's part of it, but only part of it. Only part of it. All of what, all of this is what makes community so hard and so important. You know, I have uh, lots of friends who um, inspire me, encourage me so much. They're in 12-step recovery programs. And one of the many just truisms that they talk about in these programs is, you are only as sick as your secrets. And I think that's just so true. It's so true. And it's so life-giving when we can share our secrets and recognize that I still belong. See, this is what's the most tragic thing about stirring. Certainly, it's the most ironic thing about stirring. Why do we do it in the first place? We do it to be accepted. But stirring doesn't connect us with God and each other. It ends up isolating us because it causes us to miss like this one common truth that all human beings share. When we stir in the ketchup, we are actually denying our common humanity. We are an accessory to our own isolation because every human being shares this one universal quality. We are all broken. We are all imperfect. We all run off cliffs chasing our roadrunner. 1,200 years before Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, St. Augustine, one of the founders, really, of the Christian faith, whose Sunday, by the way, was way more ketchup than ice cream. He wrote this, Follower ergo sum, I err, therefore I am. St. Augustine understood that our capacity to screw up to not know, to make mistakes, to see something one way but not the other is not some embarrassing thing. It's fundamental to who we are as human beings. We are not God. We are not supposed to be. We're not as strong as we think we are. It took the hand of God Almighty the waters in the sea but it only took one little lie to separate you and me oh we are not as strong as we think we are and they say that one day Joshua he made the sun stand still in the sky but I can't even keep these thoughts of you from passing by. Oh, we are not as strong 
Beautiful, Michael. We're not as strong as we think we are, and we don't have to be. Look, I, I wish that my Sunday only had ketchup on it, but there's like motor oil and a corroded battery and a dead bird in there if you really look. It's a mess. But confession with connection, vulnerability with belonging, living in community, is hard, but it's so important. It, it may not make life easier all the time, but it does make life better because it gives us another chance. It unleashes, unleashes mercy into our lives, which gives us a fresh start every day. Community is a vital aspect of the life of faith because our problem is not the ketchup, it's the stirring. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time in this place, for this opportunity to be together. I thank you for um, the folks, the friends, the family that you are drawing together here in this community. I pray that we would be just radically inclusive and inviting and open and warm and welcoming, always remembering that there is ketchup on our Sunday. 
that individually, we, there are things that we're wrong about. We just don't know what they are yet. As a community, that we are, there are things that we don't get. We just can't see it yet. And I pray that as you continue to draw more people to our community, that they would help break that bubble of rightness so that we can move forward together and move forward with you. I pray, Father, as we leave here this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for coming, folks. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. Have a blessed week.